I'm Helen. I'm Gavin. And welcome, welcome, welcome. And welcome, welcome back. back. So welcome along. Welcome. Take a seat. To this, this podcast. Oh. Don't sit there. There. Okay. Let's let's not let's not gatekeep seats in our imaginary podcast land. I will gatekeep all the seats I like <laughs> in my imaginary podcast land. If I'm in charge of nothing else. Oh damn it. Welcome to our welcome po- along. <laughs> welcome to our podcast where Honestly, you are very welcome. <laughs> Where we take a big mahoosif list and cut it down into teeny tiny bite-sized pieces for your listening pleasure while also talking about the stuff we're watching, reading, etc. this week. Gav, what is on your list this week? Top of my list this week, Murdo Murders, A Southern Scandal on the Netflix. On the Netflix. This is late-breaking news on the Netflix. Yeah, and th- I think this is the reason why I watched it, was to see how up-to-date it was. Uh-huh. Not very, is no. the answer. But enough, right. I think is. Because it came out during the trial. Right. And you'd have thought there would have been a little appendum put on it, but not in the version I watched. The Murder of Murders, colon, A Southern Scandal, is a 2023 true crime television series. It's been a while since I've talked about a true crime television series. Mm-hmm. This covers, unless if you don't know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the events surrounding uh, the trial of Alex Murdoch, beginning with the death of Mallory Beach. And this is how it's all kind of framed in the first of three episodes, mm-hmm. uh, which were all released, I think, about a month ago yeah. on the Netflix. These episodes run for about 45 minutes, 50 minutes. So it's easily consumable in one watch, and I think it's really kind of designed to be um, consumed in one watch. Correct. We have the, this is in the, the low country of uh, South Carolina, and the Murdoch family in the the area are very well known. There are a, a group of, or a generation, generations of lawyers in the area. Mm-hmm. And they have the kind of reputation that there's one law for them and there's another law for for everyone else. This dates back to, I think it was the the 19th century. But um, a younger member of of the, the Murtaugh clan uh, was Paul Murdoch, who was uh, the 19-year-old, I think, at the time, who whose girlfriend... Uh, Mallory was was killed in a in a boating accident, right? And and in her death and the attempted, uh, I think, cover up of it and manipulation of witnesses and evidence and stuff, eventually uh, uncovers further crimes that have been committed by uh, notable members of the family, right? For example. On a night in question with a boating accident, Paul apparently was very keen to go home by boat and he had this expensive boat and he was very particular that no one else was going to drive it. He was going to drive it, it was his boat, despite the fact that he was seven sheets to the wind. Right. And then he was arguing with his girlfriend. I think he punched her and he spat at her Mm -hmm. and there was a kind of shock amongst the friend group that this was going on but he wanted he was desperate to go home by boat not by mm-hmm. car because he'd had a tip off from other members of the family that there were 
police on the road who were looking for drunk drivers that night. So right. I get he's already abusing his power right. to take this boat rather than driving home. And in his drunken stupor, he eventually crashes into a bridge and lots of people are injured and Mallory is lost and eventually is found uh, dead. dead a few days later. So it goes back to events that happened in the past and then there are events that happen after it, none of which shine a particularly great light on the murder family. The story is mostly told by uh, friends. I don't think any of the murders themselves are on camera giving uh, any talking head uh, testimony. But it's um, people who were there at, on the night of the boating accident. There are friends, there are um, boyfriends and girlfriends and stuff. And they, they tell they tell very personal stories, and I think that's what is the the, um, the intriguing part of it, or where the human interest part of it comes from, is watching these still still young people because this only mm-hmm. happened a couple of years ago. Watching these still young people recount the events of that night, and and their their emotions are still very raw in it. So, on one side of it, it feels quite a a, a personal. Um, a personal story that they're telling, but it also feels that it's a little bit, a little bit intrusive mm-hmm. on the things that were still ongoing at the time. Now the trial yes. has, um, of the the grander um, crimes that were committed, the trial has ha- has been conducted and has come to a conclusion for Alex Murdoch, who was Paul's father, and he has now been convicted for murders that have been. Uh, committed one of which being Paul, yes, um, and his wife, and his wife. So it's all very murky, and it's all very much white people with too much power, right? Thinking that they, they can, can do anything, and this is very much the proof that that they can't. If you need any further evidence of this, and I'm not sure there are many people who do, watching the murder murders, a southern scandal. Certainly puts it in a sharp relief. Yeah, apparently they've they're uh, reopening a case because of it of uh, of someone who of a, a a young man who died. They're exhuming his body. Yeah, there are um, another one of the the sons, Buster, mm-hmm. was uh, suspected of being gay, mm-hmm. had a gay lover, mm-hmm. and that gay lover. Ended wound up, up dead. dead because if you're a murderer in Hampton County, right. South Carolina, you can't, you be, can't gay. be gay. Right. And it was ruled like an accident or something. Mm-hmm. And, and very much wasn't. And now they're like, yeah, we need to dig a little deeper here. So literally, literally. and metaphorically. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's on the Netflix. It's worth a watch. Um, if Three you're episodes. Crime that's not stuff, bad. Three episodes. It's done and dusted and little over an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. It's fairly interesting stuff as far as true crime goes. Good. What about you? What was on the top of your list this week? Benny and I went to go see <laughs> Shazam! <laughs> Fury of the Gods. Well, I'm awake now. <laughs> this is the second Shazam. This is the second Shazam movie. Uh, this one is directed by David F. Sandberg and stars Zachary Levi, Asher Angel, Jack Dylan Grazer, Adam Brody, Helen Mirren, Lucy Liu. And, Helen Mirren's in this? Yes. And Rachel Ziegler. Yes. Helen Mirren's in there. 
She plays Hespera, the oldest of the daughters of Atlas. Lucy Liu and Rachel Ziegler are her sisters. You can see the family resemblance. Just a matter of time before this happened. Right. The, the Shazam family must defeat the daughters of Atlas while also struggling to remain a team as they're all kind of growing up and going their own way. Um, this was, you know, it's been slammed a lot, just like the Ant-Man Quantumania was slammed a lot. And just like the Ant-Man Quantumania, this was fun. And it was funny. And while, you know... Well, being fun and funny, there were there were actual some genuine moments of peril and death mixed in, which which I really appreciated. The motivations and goals of the Daughters of Atlas are a bit murky. You know, in the beginning, it seems like their goal is to do this thing. But then when they kind of get that thing, they say, no, we actually our goal is to get this other thing and take it to this other place. And it's like, well, why didn't you say that in the first place? And why did you do these other things if the thing that you wanted was this thing over here? You know, it's, it's a bit murky. Uh, Freddy's I'm a superhero, so I don't feel broken, still feels a bit ableist, just like it did in the first movie. Uh, Freddy is the, the child amongst this family who has a physical disability which when he becomes a superhero no longer has this disability and you know he's he's it's better this time around but there's still a line about i do this so i don't feel broken sort of thing and it's kind of like mm, maybe we maybe we maybe we can move away from that aspect of his personality and and focus on other parts of his personality for once but i am Loving that he and the other members of the family are further developed in this one. The thing about Shazam is it's basically big for superheroes, even though it predates big by several decades, where a child is given superpowers and then his adopted fam he's able to give the other children in his adopted family superpowers as well. And when they get superpowers, when they say the word Shazam they become full-grown adults with superpowers, with super speed and stuff like that. I'm explaining this because I'm, I, because I'm pretty sure you are not familiar with Shazam. I've seen the trailer. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of told me everything I needed to know about it. Right, yeah. This was not going to be my entry point or my re-entry point back into the world of comic book movies. No. Benny said Which, it was fine. Yeah, yeah. We, we both... Has his one word capsule review. Right. Well, <clears throat> he's 16. Um, there's a great cameo at the end that pays off a running joke all the way through, which is really great. The end credit scene kind of implies that we're going to be seeing less of the rest of the family and mostly just Shazam the next time he shows up in a DC movie, which I'm not hugely loving. But yeah, I mean... I think it's it's interesting. There was um, there was a Twitter kerfuffle last oh week. Twitter um, does like a kerfuffle. It does. I, <laughs> I myself have been uh, involved in a Twitter Twitter kerfuffle once or twice. Once or twice. Yes. So I know what that's like. Where where someone complained about the fact that 
there's nothing besides Puss in Boots Part Two. There's really nothing in theaters right now for kids until we get to Super Mario in May, April, around that time. And and people got really upset and offend- and offended at this person. And lots of people were saying, just go and see Puss in, Puss in Boots again. Like, children can't appreciate watching more than one movie, you know. Mm. And a lot of people were saying, well, just take them to Shazam or Ant-Man. Because, you know, there's this assumption that comic books, just like animation, are just for children. And I mean, I can kind of understand with Shazam because the superheroes are children. But we were, we saw this on a Monday afternoon. And it was us, and there was a guy way in the back, and there was a guy way in the front. And then right behind us was a family with a five-year-old. Please do not take your five-year-olds to see Shazam, because they will talk and ask questions all the way through. Yeah, take them to Scream 6 instead. Yes, please take them to see Scream 6 instead. Like the family that were in front of us to see that. I don't know if they're quite that young. No, they weren't that young. Maybe but 10. This, this was just a very wee child. And like there's, there's an emotional breaking point towards the end of the movie where something very serious happens. And it's ve- the movie at that point is very quiet. And we are very quiet. And all of a sudden behind us I hear, Why is everybody so sad? Why are they sad, Mama? And it's like just we Harry from Coronation Street was on this. Soft play. <laughs> That's a joke that only pays off if you listen to Talk of the Street, which you should do, right? Even if you don't like British soap operas. But anyway, so I mean, like I said, there there's some genuine peril and some genuinely scary bits. One of those scary bits ends with some disgraceful product placement of Skittles. No, which which ends in 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 a twelve year old child saying, "Taste the rainbow, motherfuckers." You oh, don't nice. hear the fuckers part, but <laughs> you know it's like mother, and then a unicorn rams its horn through a cyclops because you know these, yeah that's also in the trailer. Yeah, these movies, these movies, these movies like Thor rely heavily on mythology while also completely changing mythology yes so um sophisticated as it is sophisticated as it is so yeah i for the people who are complaining that it's so horrible and terrible and you know they have comic book movie fatigue blah 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 in a couple of years when we don't have nearly as many comic book movies which i'm sure is coming if you revisit this you'll actually probably love it because I really liked it. I, I like the character. I like the idea of the superhero kid. This is why Spider-Man has always been one of my favorite super book, her- super, super book heroes. Comic book heroes. Mm. Zachary Levi's a bit annoying as the adult Shazam, as opposed to Billy Batson. That's what I took from the trailer. Because he's still acting like he did in the first movie when Billy was 12. Billy is now 17. And the the child Billy Batson in this movie is more mature and grown up 
than the adult Shazam. And that's kind of, that should have been addressed, you know, and maybe Zachary Levi tone it down just a wee bit. But yeah, I liked the other kids. The other kids are fine. Good. More of the more of the other kids, please. Well, apparently, less of the other kids is what's happening. Yeah, which is a which is a shame. I also have to say it's a it's a it's a crying shame. We we saw the Flash um, trailer when we went to see this, and I'm ashamed to say it looks good, and I kind of want to see it, even though I I really don't want to see it because I don't want to support. The person who plays Flash, oh. who is kidnapped people and assaulted people and etc. Oh, we've all kidnapped some people in our times, haven't we? But you know, Michael Keaton's Batman is in it. Oh, good. So, but anyway, so <clears throat> in addition to Shazam and the Murdaugh murders, we as a family went to go see Champions. Yes. <laughs> Directed by. Um, Bobby Farley, but not both of the Farley brothers. And starring Woody Harrelson, Caitlin Olson, Cheech Marin, and Ernie Hudson. Yay, Ernie Hudson! Yeah. Put Ernie Hudson and Cheech Marin in more movies, you cowards. A J-level basketball coach, after assaulting his boss and then driving drunk into the back of a police car, takes community service coaching a team of intellectually disabled adults. Gav, what do you think of this movie? I'm trying to remember if Bobby Farley is the brother that you can trust with something like this. Or, or, or I was trying to remember this before we went to see it, which felt like a bit of a toss of a coin. Right. How is this going to go? Right. Because if this was the 1990s... It would have been horrible. It would have been a disaster. There is one very Farley moment in this movie. Yeah. And, and that's about it. Yeah, and, and that... I don't know if that was one of my least favourite moments of it. There were, it was I my had, least favourite I had several moment. least favourite moments. Yeah, it was one of mine. Of this. But it isn't the 90s. No. And thankfully, Thank thankfully, this is something you can go and see more or less without that kind of niggling fear in the back of your head that they're going to say things that you don't... The, 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 the focus of the joke is going to be something that you'd rather it wouldn't... It, it wasn't. And for the most part, that's not the case. Or for the most part, you're fine. Yes. Yeah, this um, this is, is reinventing nothing. No. <laughs> um, if you've ever seen a sport and comedy, you know exactly where this is going to go. Right. With the exception of one key part in this. The one key part is the thing that I think, for me, is obviously missing. And for me, it really needed to have... Whenever you have a sporting comedy where a washed-up coach comes along to mm-hmm. to help out a, a struggling team, a team of uh, perennial losers, and I'm thinking the Bad News Bears here, mm-hmm. specifically, but you could name a few. Yes, there has to be either a montage or preferably a series of montages where. You see what happens to turn this bad team good. Right. That doesn't happen in this movie. No. The team's bad and then suddenly they're good. And suddenly, not only are they good, suddenly they're great. I think I was expecting them to be kids. 
and they're not kids. No. The the team is a group of intellectually disabled adults. Right. And I'm quite pleased that it was that because if it was kids, maybe they're going for that kind of cutie sort of right. vibe. These are not cute people. These are regular, smelly, hairy people. And I think from that point of view, that subverted my expectations mm-hmm. a little bit. You have a team of adults here that are um, bad at basketball that Woody Harrelson is going to, to turn around. I think some of them, even at this point, were kind of good at it. I mean, there was one person who was very, very good. Yes, who refuses to play. Right. But you're not going to be surprised by really any of the other beats that this movie takes even up to the end everything is really signposted to let you know exactly to the to the final play you know exactly what's going to happen and it and it doesn't veer away from that and i kind of wish that it had veered away from the well-trodden path at least somewhere yeah and in, in the narrative arc that it's going to take because even in the the love interest part of the story between Woody Harrelson and Caitlin Olsen. Nice to see her in a movie. She's pretty good. Um, yes. Even that doesn't really go anywhere that you don't expect it to go. So there's nothing really in in anything here that you're going to see that is going to um, surprise you or get you to sit up in your seat. No. What you're hoping for is that it's going to be funny, and it isn't. Well... It isn't funny. It's funny occasionally... For the longest time, though, you're kind of smiling at it because you kind of see what they're trying to do. Right. And you very much appreciate that it's coming from a good place Mm -hmm. and the movie actually has a decent heart to it. Mm -hmm. It's not mean-spirited at all. All the jokes are punching up. up. And the people who are making the jokes are the intellectually disabled team. Right. They're making the jokes against Woody Harrelson. Yes. It's not Woody Harrelson making jokes against them. And there's a moment where somebody does try to make some jokes against the team. And Woody Harrelson, because he's been changed and he's learned mm-hmm. a little bit about himself and he's learned about people and he's mm-hmm. learned about the world thanks to this team, he very much puts them in their in the right place. Right. What I think is the best thing of this movie is the people that went to see it with us. Yes. People that you don't typically see in the movie theatres or you mm-hmm. see very infrequently. But there was yes. a group of people who were watching the movie who were seeing themselves up on the screen mm-hmm. for a very rare moment of that. Yes. And they were loving it. Yes, they were. Because who knew people like to see themselves positively represented in their media? Right. Who knew? Who knew? That is an actual thing. That is an actual thing. And from that point of view, that's great. Yes. For me, I needed it to be funnier. Uh I wished it was funnier. The moments where it was funny, I thought it was very funny. Yes. But to me, if we're marking this in the six laugh test, it failed that for me. I think I Mm -hmm. laughed a couple of times. But I was smiling through an awful lot of it. Yes. And (sighs) I needed to be funnier. And it needed to get on with its business a lot quicker than it did. Because yes. for a movie that is not going to surprise you narratively, it went on for a very, very long time. Like over two hours. It felt like it was, well, I think it was just a two-hour movie, but it felt like it went on for, for much longer than that. Yes. I would call it 
a a qualified success or a success with qualifications. Mm-hmm. What did you think about it? When the movie is focused on the team and their lives and they're making the jokes, it's great. The romantic subplot between Olsen and Harrelson, eh, not so much. And it's interesting to note that this this is a remake of a Spanish movie called Champions. And I'm, in, I'm sorry, Helen, don't speak Spanish. What does that mean? <laughs> Champions. Oh, okay. And in that movie, the two the, the the man and the woman are married already. They're a married couple who right. are trying to support this team and this community center, you know. And the financial strain of the community center is is what's kind of driving them apart. And I kind of feel like that's a more interesting take than this take here, which is basically just uh, a woman who is perhaps a little overly emotionally attached to her brother with Down syndrome and, and kind of refuses to let him go and be an adult has herself stunted her relation her her ability to have a, an emotional relationship of a sexual nature mm-hmm. and so just has random sex with people and decides to just have random sex with this one guy mm-hmm. Woody Harrelson and that one guy just happens to be Woody Harrelson which her 14 not- year old stepdaughter reviewed as realistically no woman is that willing to have sex with Woody Harrelson which I think is, is the best one sentence review for this movie I have read <laughs> Three stars. We are not talking about cheers, Woody Harrelson. No. We are talking about balding, kingpin, Woody Harrelson. Aging, massive nipples, Woody Harrelson. Yeah. (laughs) Nipples you can see even when he is fully dressed. When he's got his back to you. All the way throughout the movie. When he's got his back to you, you can see them. You know, I really. I loved. Like, like you said, the fact that they're adults, I think, is really important here. And I love the fact that the movie makes a small effort, enough of an effort, well, not really enough of an effort, but a small effort to, to show each one of them as full-fledged adults mm-hmm. with, with different... With different levels of ability. One lives alone and has a full-time job. A few live in in a home together and have jobs and stuff. But you learn all of this in a very brief montage narrated by Cheech Marin. And then, except for the one guy who lives alone and has a job, we really don't go into it ever again. And there's one character, Constantina, that we don't get any of that information for. I'm not sure why she's in that movie. She just shows up with a boogie board. She is delightful. I love her. But she was introduced like she was going to be going back to the Bad News Bears. This is her secret weapon. Right. She was introduced like she was going to be the secret weapon, and she wasn't. Well, she's kind of the secret weapon. because We saw her play, I think... Twice. She whips the guys into shape. She's she's all business. She talks Johnny out of a funk at one point. Johnny is is this brother of the Caitlin Olson character. Mm-hmm. Um, so is our main focus 
of the members of the team, if the movie was focused on the team and their lives and what they're doing instead of Woody Harrelson's coach gets, gets redeemed because of these people, he learns to become a better human because of these people. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been a much more funny and interesting, interesting movie if he was, if he was completely the subplot and we were just focused on these people and not all of them have down syndrome either. No, You know, there are, there are people with other forms of intellectual disability. Guy had a head injury after a, a car accident. Yes. So a little bit of damage to his brain, I think. Right. And then there's, there's one who has not muscular dystrophy, but something similar to that where, wherein there are, there are parts of his body that are, they're very sensitive and he has to wear a helmet while he's playing. Mm. And, and he kind of also feels like he may be on the autism spectrum. Right. So that's really good. It, you know, there's there's so much potential here. And it just it just doesn't quite get there because there's there's just too much on this relationship. And it's interesting because in addition to these two movies, I also saw The Jesus Revolution this week. I was very busy this week at the movie theater. I was there like three days in a row. And that also is supposed to be a movie about one thing. And yet the subplot that involves a relationship between a man and a woman kind of encroaches and overshadows this other thing that you actually went to the movie to see. Mm -hmm. And it's also two hours long and it's also far too long. And you wish that they would have just cut out that subplot of the relationship between the man and the woman. So movies, movies with people not... are Cheers. I think is the, yes. the theme for the week. Gosh, if only a member of Cheers was at Shazam, it would have been perfect. Yeah, should have gone for the woman that played Carla instead of Helen Mirren. Yeah, Rhea Perlman. Rhea Perlman. She's she's going to be in the next season of uh, Poker Face. I'm quite excited about that. All right, and now on to our main event. We are counting down the Rolling Stone greatest song, 500 songs, would you believe, of all time. And this week, we are counting down songs 150 to 146. And the 140s. 140s. And just be prepared, people. These are all bangers. There is not a bad song in the bunch. There is not a song on here that makes me question why this song is on here. All killers, no fillers. Absolutely. And we are going to start those killers with number 150, Green Day with Basket Cake. I went to a whore. He With Basket Case from the 1994 album Dookie. 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 It means a jobby. Yes. It's the American jobby. Oh, if only Jobby Johnson had known that, he could have <laughs> been Dookie Davidson. But oh, well. Too little, too late. Written by Billy Joe Armstrong, Trey Cool, and Mike Durnt Gav. 
Your thoughts. Green Day got a lot of shit about not being proper punks. Yeah, fuck, fuck those people. And, you know, whatever that means. And these days, well, these days there's probably some truth to it. But back at the Duque insomniac Nimrod days, mm-hmm. and as you said, Duque with Basket Case, they're most people's entry point to Green Day, I would have thought. Right. And they were absolutely punk. This is punk. This is fast power chords. It's catchy, slightly transgressive lyrics, pounding drums, explosive fills. If this isn't punk, Helen, I don't know what is. Punk is a state of mind. You cannot define punk. I can't. It's got fast power chords. It's catchy. <laughs> it's slightly transgressive. Okay. Billy Joe Armstrong wrote it in an attempt to deal with the panics attack that he got in his youth. He is the melodramatic fool and capable of telling if he's paranoid or stoned. Special mention, and I say this every time I speak about this era of Green Day, special mention for Mike Dunt, whose bass lines are wonderful. Absolutely. Far more complex than anyone has any right to expect here. And it's him that's singing the the harmony as well. And he does a damn fine job of that as well. Almost as good as me. Well. I wasn't going to be the first person to say that. <laughs> I love how, unlike some others that we've mentioned, the band <coughs> Radiohead <coughs> Creep, the band still seems to have a positive relationship with the song. Yeah. Still makes its way onto the set list these days. Armstrong says now that he's older, though, the song is about the crowd. They're having their moment. The song was about him having the moment. Mm-hmm. But now it's about the audience having its moment. And he is effectively the audience to witness that which is kind of cool and this song sounds amazing acoustically as well you play the song on the acoustic guitar with maybe a slightly different rhythm to it Ah, it's it's awesome it sounds brand new yeah it's great what did you think so good such a good song uh written as you said written as a way to deal with his panic disorder it definitely struck a chord with uh, Gen Xers in their last years of high school and freaking out about adulthood. They just... Green Day showed up at the right time with the right people, mm-hmm. including me, who once went to a Green Day concert at Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, and there was already an ambulance parked outside <laughs> just in case. How many times that? I think I've seen them... I've seen them twice... I saw them twice on the same tour, uh, both times in Glasgow, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure there was an ambulance outside for that as well. Probably. But it was at an Offspring concert that I nearly died. But anyway. <laughs> I haven't nearly... Well, no. The only time I nearly died it was at a Max Creek concert. And that's because I was very, very pregnant at the time. Huh. <laughs> and probably shouldn't have been there. Right. Amongst a cloud of... Pot smoke, because it was a Max Creek concert. Anyway, mad, frantic, subversive, but also beautiful with with those harmonies. You know, there's, and maybe that's why people, you know, say Green Day isn't punk because their songs are punk and they're frantic, and you've got the power chords, but they are also beautiful. Mm. You know. Even the lyrics are beautiful. Maybe not the part where, you know, he goes to a whore who said his life's a bore, so quit his whining because it's bringing her down, etc. And, you know, they're yeah, still but boys. It does, but it does something interesting there when it, it 
um, swaps the genders around. Right. In an era where you're, you're not really expecting the genders to be swapped Absolutely. around. Yeah. And I think... Um, and I think I give them some credit for that. Yeah, because even the shrink is a is a woman, mm. because she says it's lack of lack of sex that's bringing him down. Right, and then and then he just can't get any help from a whore, so then he goes alone, all by himself. No one was looking. That's a different song. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I think I think it's fair to say we're both quite fond of the Green Day. This era Green Day, I start to lose a little bit of interest in them, kind of post-American idiot. But this era Green Day is sublime. I love Green Day. The only times I don't love Green Day is when I watch a movie and Billy Joe Armstrong is trying to act. Oh, yikes. Thank goodness that doesn't happen very often. But anyway, moving on. Speaking of movies, at 149, we have Elton John. With Rocket Man. That's Elton John with Rocket Man from the 1972 album Honky Chateau, written by Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Would you believe? Gav, your thoughts? The lyrics are based on a 1951 Ray Bradbury short story where people working in space had no real idea how their spaceships worked, but they just went up there to work on them, which is an astoundingly obvious but also pretty mind-blowing observation that will absolutely end up being the case, fingers crossed, if we managed to live that long right most people working on computers these days have no idea how computers work correct <clears throat> so once space travel becomes normal that's exactly how it'll end up and that's that's a wonderful notion mm-hmm. the first stanza she packed my bags last night pre-flight zero hour 9 a.m and i'm going to be high as a kite by then was thought to have come to Bernie Toppin when he was on the motorway heading to his parents' house and he had to keep repeating it to himself for two hours until he got there and could write it down. <laughs> now you just record yourself on the phone, I guess. Right, yeah. That you don't know exactly how it works, but you know that it works. Right. He should just he should have brought a tape recorder with him everywhere. Yeah. Being Bernie Taubin. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder of a simpler time, though, right? The theme of space travel and astronauts can also be interpreted as how rock stars can quickly become isolated from the real world. Being high as a kite definitely has a couple of meanings. Musically, it might just be my favourite Elton John tune. It's a soaring orchestral ballad with synth and slide guitar to add perfectly to the otherworldliness of it. Cover version, you say? Well, how about Kate Bush, David Fonseca, Dua Lipa in the 2021 mashup Cold Heart? And who could forget... William Shatner reading out the lyrics. God, I actually love that. And I was thinking about it while we while I was uh, writing this. Because it's, it's, you know, it's so perfect for William Shatner's, you know, spoken word performance art because he is the rocket man. I will respectfully disagree. <laughs> when Elton played this in the Soviet Union, it was listed on the program as... Cosmonaut. Fun of fact. Of course it was. What did you think of it, Helen? Yeah, uh, you already mentioned the whole Radbur- uh, 
the whole fact that it is inspired by a Ray Bradbury story and written in a way the Rocket Man could have been in the cast of Alien, which is a movie about blue collar workers in space. Yeah. Yeah. We should we should have more of that. You know, we mentioned William Shatner. I think this is why I like the the Star Trek show Below Decks the most because it's not, you know, captains and you know, engineers and really smart people necessarily on the ship. It's all the other people. Uh, The soaring sounds elevate the song's lyrics and the loneliness of the plight of the rocket man. It's a song for every man in space. (laughs) You know, this era has an awful lot of every man songs, you know, like John Lennon's working class hero, etc. But this literally elevates the everyman into the stars and to be an astronaut to be an astronaut and still kind of hang dog and it's kind of funny because you know the first astronauts were military pilots and stuff they weren't scientists they weren't engineers they were kind of this kind of person you know jocks in space jocks in space. space looking at you buzz aldrin so you know so even even from the very beginning of the space age it's it's kind of apt you know and and it shares its name with a movie about elton john which sadly was very 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 much robbed of any sort of oscar campaign the year after that stupid Bohemian Rhapsody movie came oh, out. Oh, don't get me started on that. And won everything, including editing, which there was no editing in that movie. But I digress. Taron Edgerton was robbed, as was Sir Elton John himself. Although You're I digressing think, from your digression. Yes. Although I think Elton has um, an Oscar for a Lion King song or something. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. At 148, something else that meanders and digresses quite a bit it's our song it's our song number 148 led zeppelin with cashmere That's Cashmere from the 1975 album Physical Graffiti, written by John Bonham, Robert Plant, and Jimmy Page. Gav, your thoughts? Robert Plant wrote the lyrics as he was travelling through Morocco on his way to a festival, even though Morocco isn't in Africa, and Cashmere definitely isn't. He said it was about driving from Morocco to Cashmere. Yeah, right, Robert. I've never really been able to decipher any of the lyrics, and I can't be bothered looking them up. So my, <laughs> from my ill-informed perspective... It's the riff that does the heavy lifting here, and it's the drumming that brings it home. And how many times have we heard something like this? But Jimmy Page said that the riff began as a tuning cycle, and it ends up being the cornerstone of a hugely successful song, which is something that he mucked about with just as he was warming his fingers up. 
It's such an intense, hypnotic piece of music, so monstrous and dramatic, according to Plant, and yet it managed to avoid being described as heavy metal, which was a term that the band hated. It says on Song Facts that Puff Daddy sampled it. He, he did. didn't really sample it. He lifted the whole thing for Come With Me, which wound up on the Godzilla soundtrack and introduced the song to a whole new audience. It's great. It fades out, though, and after 8 minutes and 21 seconds, it's got a bloody nerve doing so, and it also takes forever to fade out. Ah, it's so long. Helen, what do you think? Such a long, long, long song. (sighs) It's like a two-hour movie. With a lizard. Right. Wait, which Godzilla movie was that? The Matthew Broderick one, I think. That's not the one I like. Oh, those strings. So intense all the way through the song. As unrelenting as the desert sun. Plant wrote, as you said, Plant wrote the lyrics in Morocco, imagining the drive to Kashmir. Way over on the Indochina border. Way, way far away from Morocco. Or Pakistan-China border, if you prefer. It's disputed. It's been in the news. Yes. Anyway. Last 50 years. (laughs) Not as directly riffing on the Eastern craze that was pulsing through rock music at the time, there is not a sitar in sight in this song. It still manages to catch the feeling of place. It is far too long, though. Yeah, seriously. Mm -hmm. At 147, a song that's definitely not too long, it's Fat Domino with Blueberry Hill. Oh, Blueberry Hill. When I found you The moon stood still On Blueberry Hill That's Fast Domino with Blueberry Hill from the 1956 single Blueberry Hill written by Al Lewis, Larry Stock and Vincent Rose. Gav, your thoughts? This song had an extensive history before Fats Domino got his paws on it. It was written for the 1940 western The Singing Hill, which no one remembers, before being released by Gene Autry. It was also a hit for Glenn Miller, Louis Armstrong and Elvis. It's not like Elvis to take someone else's song. Larry Stock recalled that one publisher turned the song down because it was claimed that blueberries don't grow on hills. That is a falsehood. Even though Larry Stock had blueberries on the hill, which is why he wrote the song. Anybody who's ever read the picture book, Blueberries for Sal, knows that's... A falsehood. I'm not sure exactly what Fats Domino adds to the song other than being Fats Domino with that voice. <clears throat> Ray Manzarek of The Doors admitted that he <clears throat> borrowed the bass line for Light My Fire from the song. As with lots of songs from this era, the bass line really is the foundation of the tune, but everything that's built on it, every chord change, every progression that it takes, every direction that it takes... All the moving parts of this just Mm -hmm. come together absolutely perfectly. The song moves exactly as it should, and it ends exactly as it should. And as far as sub-three-minute songs go, this is as good as any of them. Yes. What do you think? This version still has a bit of honky-tonk in it that the original had. Fats Domino manages to expand it beyond what Gene Autry or even Louis Armstrong could do by making it universal with that piano part elevating it to a swing mm-hmm. instead of a honky-tonk sort of movement. The Fats Domino gets this 
you know, kind of swingy voice and the swingy kind of piano part. And, and, and yet it starts very much like a, like a honky tonk song. And, you know, apparently this version was played an awful lot in honky tonks, uh, in white honky tonks throughout the South when it came out. So it really, uh, it really gave Fats Domino a wider audience. It was another well one of those songs that was uh, hoped by the performer that it would encourage more white people to dance. Yes. I don't know why the, the emphasis on getting white people to dance. Or at least white people to listen to they it. they can't. No. So. We as white people. And I'm sorry for that. We try though. We, we do that. Remember when we did that like you tried to teach me that Scottish dance with all the galloping. The gay Gordons. Yes. Sorry, Gordon. I don't gallop very well. <laughs> anyway, moving on to our final song of the week. It's James Taylor with Fire and Rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. But I always thought that I'd see you again Won't you look down upon me, Jesus? That's James Taylor with Fire and Rain from the 1970 album Sweet Baby James Written by James Taylor, would you believe? There's just so much James in this right. intro Gav, your thoughts? I think you have to be in a certain mood for James Taylor This was written over three periods of his life he started it in London when he was auditioning for Apple Records. He later worked on it in hospital and he finished it in drug rehab. And an awful lot of it has to do with the death of his friend Suzanne. His friends apparently kept the news of her death secret from Taylor for several months so as not to interrupt his music career, which was finally taken off. That's friends for you. Wider, it's about his battles with depression and addiction. And it's a bit of a standout on the Sweet Baby James album, which overall was actually more uplifting. This is a song that's used in the Deep Space Homer episode of The Simpsons and he sings the sweet dreams and flying machines and pieces on the ground as the space, space mission is being sabotaged by Homer and ants. I kind of discovered James Taylor and Johnny Mitchell at the same time and listening to one tends, me, tends to make me think of the other and listening to either typically makes me listen to Johnny Mitchell's Blue and you're free to read into that whatever you like. What do you think, Helen? Speaking of an everyman in space, Homer Simpson. There you go. There you go. Homer in space. Space, 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 space. Yes, written in part as a response to the death by suicide of Suzanne Schnur and in part to his own mental health issues and drug addictions. It's a sensitive and gentle song filled with an abundance of grief and honesty. It, it 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 does the lyrics do not flinch no they don't at at telling you how sad he is but his voice and the music surrounding it are so gentle that you just kind of cradled in that grief in a way that when you are sad when you have sadness in your life you can listen to this song about somebody unbearably sad in an unbearable portion of his life and it makes you feel better that's a good point and it's like the it, honestly it is 
It's like Hey Ya by Outcast. <laughs> There's a song that doesn't sound like it's about what it's about. It's a really, it's a kind of depressing wee right. song, Hey Ya. Yes. And you think it's upbeat. Right. You don't think this is upbeat, but you think it's a, it's a beautiful, gentle, peaceful, lullaby. Right, exactly. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's weighed down far more by its meaning than the music would lead you to believe. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, Gav. I know it's 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 a toughie this week. That is a toughie this week. What is your pick of the week? My pick of the week is Fats Domino, Blueberry Hill. What? <laughs> Seriously, it's just like it's a perfect song. It's just such a perfect song. You listen to it, and you're it like, is. every single thing that that does is just one. The little journey and the turns that it takes, I I adore it. Yeah. I just adore it. Yeah, for me, it's Basket Case. And just that, just because of Mike Dern's harmonies. Right. Yeah. And which that, I, I also sing whenever the song comes on. <laughs> One of the things you love the most about me. As you as you as you said on Facebook once. Yeah. Once upon a time. Like tennis years ago. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> would you like to hear about our polls from last week? Helen, I would love to hear about our polls from earlier this week. <laughs> well, Twitter. Twitter had a nice had a nice spread this week. Last night got eleven percent of the vote. Who's voting for that? I know two people who are voting for that, and honestly, I am shocked <laughs> and disappointed in both of them. Because typically I I see them as men of great taste, but never mind. Men. Men. Because of course men voted for that song. 11% of the vote went to Spoonful as well. Super Freak got 33% of the vote. Proud Mary got 33% of the vote. And Will You Love Me Tomorrow, which was a write-in, got 12% of the vote. So, joy all around yep. on the Twitter. Facebook, less of a spread. Last night got 25% of the vote. Jeez. Oh, Our <laughs> fingers are so far away from the pulse here. Nate... And Ricky, shame on you. <laughs> shame on you both. Nathan Tyree, whose podcast, the Bloodfest podcast, I will be a guest on next month. It's okay, a little up. plug. I've got to watch. I've got to watch uh, Dawn of the Dead soon and write notes on it, which will be fun. I love that movie. Anyway, Super Freak which I spelled very strangely, got 12% of the vote on Facebook. And Will You Love Me Tomorrow got 62% of the vote on Facebook. So only three of the songs got votes. And one of those just happened to be last night. Shame on both of you. Anyway, would you like to hear about what we're going to be listening to for next week? Or the week after. Or the week after, yes. Because we've got spring break coming up, so we probably won't be doing this next week. We will not be doing this next week. We will be... Jamming out to tunes in Nashville next week. So in two weeks' time, tell us what we'll be listening to then. Yes. Well, it's very interesting that you mentioned Outcast. Oh. Because at 145, we have Outcast with... Hey, yeah. No. Oh. Miss Jackson. Because I am for real. Yes, I'm, I'm aware <laughs> of it. At 144, we have the Rolling Stones with Jumpin' Jack Flash. Okay. Because it's a gas, gas, gas. Yep. At 143, we have The Clash. With London Calling. Ugh, that London. That London. At 142, the saddest song of all time, 
George Jones with He Stopped Loving Her Today. And at 141, Rod Stewart. Oh, God, no. With Maggie May. (laughs) So again. (sighs) No, these aren't bangers. These are bangers. I think these are bangers. I'm not hugely fond of The Clash, but I do like London Calling because I live by the river. I really do. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I mean, Maggie May is funny to me. It's a funny song. It's, this is. Let's save this for a couple of weeks because I, <laughs> I have thoughts. Yes, I know you do. So, if you'd like to tell us what you think of those songs, what you think of last week's songs, what you think of this week's songs, if you want to tell us if you liked Shazam, if there were what the five-year-olds in your showing were saying, what you think of the Murdoch murders, and what you think of the upcoming further investigations within them and how much you hate rich white people you can contact us we are on the twitter at the list of list one we are on facebook at the list of list podcast and you can email us at the list of list podcast at gmail.com and we will see you again in two weeks see you in a couple of weeks folks take care bye bye